Last Sunday morning, we began a little two-part sermon mini-series talking about how they bound the hands of Jesus in the very garden where he prayed. We spoke at length of John chapter 18, verses 1 through 12, where they came to arrest Jesus. Verse 4, of course, tells us that Jesus knew all things that was going to happen to him. And if we read on there, we would get to verse 12, and it would tell us again that they, they bound his hands there in the garden where he prayed. We also then went last week to Mark 15 and verse 1, where it says of the events of the next morning, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate, whom it would tell us in verse 15 of that same chapter that Pilate then went on to deliver Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And the question that I asked at the time was how would you like to have been one of the ones who put Jesus there and had to stand before God on Judgment Day, not only with all of your own sins on your soul, but with the blood of his son on your hands? No wonder when Peter told them what they had done in Acts 2, that they were the ones who had killed the very son of the living God. They said to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? But what are we going to do? I, I believe that they would have probably swallowed poison or walked across broken glass or burning coals or anything else at that point, and anything they could to get rid of that sin, anything they could not to wind up before God on judgment day with the blood of his son on their hands. And the thing is, is while we did not put Jesus there physically, physically, nor did we drive the spikes through his joints personally. We are all just as guilty as Peter told them they were that day because it was every much yours and my sin that held him there as it was theirs. Every bit as much. In fact, for those who obey the gospel and are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to become New Testament Christians, and then they turn away and, and go back into the world, the Bible itself literally says that they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Very similarly to that, Although we may not be the ones, again, who, who physically tied the knots, we may not be the ones who physically bound the hands of Jesus. There are a number of ways each day that many of us may be just as guilty of figuratively binding Jesus' hands more than once, of neutralizing his power 
his ability to help both us and others. We can neutralize Jesus' ability to help us and others. There are other ways that we may be guilty of figuratively tying the hands of Jesus, rendering him powerless or helpless to help us or others. Now, I'm sure when some hear that, they may think, well, he's the son of the living God. I can't render him powerless. Oh, yes, you can. And here's why. Because of limitations he's put on himself. You see, you can neutralize the power of the Son of the living God because he is the Son of the living God. Because as the Son of the living God, he's not going to go beyond the plan of God. As such, he's not going to violate or invalidate our God-given free will or our right to choose our own destiny and make our own decisions any more than he was willing to violate, invalidate, or rebel against the will of God back then by bursting his bonds, calling for 12 legions of angels, or coming down from the cross where they chose to nail him. No more than he would violate the will of God to do those things when he was on that cross. Is he going to violate the will of God today and go against the free will God has given us. Hence, you and I can figuratively and just as effectively bind his hands today as they did physically in that day. Tying his hands, neutralizing his sacrifice, rendering him helpless to help us, making all he went through, which we covered so in depth last week when we talked about the cross, rendering all of that null and void and to no avail in our lives. What a terrible tragedy that is. First off, as we covered last Sunday, we bind or we tie the hands of Jesus so that he cannot help us when we refuse to accept his free gift of forgiveness by obeying the gospel and being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Here's the question. What good, and really think about this. This is one of those duh questions, but think about it anyway. What good does the sacrifice of Jesus do? What good does the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus do for somebody who refuses to obey the gospel to receive the forgiveness it provides? What good does it do them? Absolutely none. When a person refuses to obey the gospel, we tie his hands. He cannot help those people. He can't help them. His hands are tied, and they're the ones who tied them. Think about that. They tie his hands to helping them just as surely and effectively as the authorities did in John 18, verse 12, and Mark 15, verse 1. The second way we talked about last week that we tie or bind the hands of Jesus and render him helpless to helping us is when we refuse to avail ourselves of every single possible, potential, available opportunity to read and to study and to focus and to meditate upon his word. Because you see, it is through the word that God is 
wanting to and able to transform us by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12 and verse 2, into the image of Christ. You see, we weren't just saved to be saved. We were saved to be transformed into the image of Christ. That happens through the renewing of our mind, through studying. So, so we bind the hands of Jesus when we don't study at every opportunity. If we don't study, we can't be transformed into his image and created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4 and verse 24. Now, admittedly, one of the reasons that some folks don't want to study the Bible. One of the reasons that many people might not want to study any deeper or a lot more than they do is because they're scared of what they're going to find. They're a little scared of what they're going to find. They might find that they're going to have to make some uncomfortable changes in their life. And they figure, well, if I don't study and see it, then I won't have to do it. It's like the little child, and I've used this before, but it's so appropriate. It's like the little child who says, okay, I've covered my eyes, you can't see me. Doesn't work that way. Those changes still are things that God's going to hold us accountable for. You know, a <clears throat> person doesn't study, maybe, because they're scared that they're going to find that they have to take more personal responsibility for their actions. May find they're going to be challenged to work a lot harder to overcome certain sins. Or that maybe they're going to have to make some difficult course corrections in their life. You know, they may learn that they can't just have gotten baptized and then simply put it on autopilot or cruise control and leave it at that. Brethren who thus refuse to make the most of every opportunity to study the word of God bind the hands of Jesus, render him helpless to better helping them. And as I, I talk about a person who gets baptized and then kind of doesn't study much and doesn't care to and doesn't want to, putting it on autopilot cruise control. I'm reminded of the story of the death of professional golfer Payne Stewart, who was born not all that far from here, actually in Springfield, Missouri. How many of you remember Payne Stewart, the golfer, at least the name? I'm not a big golf fan, but Payne Stewart was kind of known for wearing knicker-like pants on the golf course. He won 18 golf championships, he won three major championships. He died in a plane crash on October the 25th, 1999, at the age of just 42 years old. He died when the Learjet that he was flying in departed Orlando, Florida at 9.19 a.m. on its way to Dallas, Texas so that he could compete in a championship later that week in Houston when that plane crashed nose first into a swampy grassland near Mena, South Dakota. Now for those of you that look confused, and there's more than one or two, you're probably thinking of a map of the United States, which is a good thing to think of when I throw those out there. And you're thinking, okay, whoa, stop. 
Orlando, Florida, flying to Dallas, Texas, crashes in South Dakota? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Four hours after takeoff. According to Timothy Hall in his article, Automatic Pilot, after climbing to their cruising altitude of 42,000 feet, the pilot engaged the plane's autopilot. After that, something happened. Air control authorities never heard from anyone on board again. What is believed to have happened was once they climbed to 42,000 feet, as the plane went up and they got to 42,000 feet, that the pilot punched in autopilot, and the plane hadn't swung yet on its, on its turn toward Dallas. It was kind of headed up towards South Dakota, and they believed that the, the cabin of the plane became depressurized, and that the oxygen went out, and that everybody went unconscious. That's what is believed to have happened. And so the plane was going to run on autopilot on its preset course until it ran out of fuel and crashed, which is exactly what happened. It was just on autopilot, just on cruise control. There were several planes that were sent up that day to try to intercept this Learjet. Don't know what they thought they were going to do, but according to the Washington Post, amongst several of those military aircraft that were ordered to try to help, about noontime that day, four of them, four Air National Guard F-16s and a KC-135 tanker from Tulsa were ordered to try to catch up with the Learjet, but only got within 100 miles of it. But two other Air National Guard F-16s from Fargo, North Dakota, intercepted the Learjet at 12.54 p.m reporting that the aircraft's windows were fogged with ice and that no flight control movement could be seen. 20 minutes later, at 1.14, they reported that the Learjet was beginning to spiral to the ground. Again, with the windows all iced over, the thought was the oxygen, the, the cabin had decompressed and everybody was either unconscious or already dead. And the plane began to sputter as it ran out of fuel and, and took a hard nose, nose dive to the ground. Now, I want you to think for a minute of those pilots. Here they are flying alongside this Learjet. They can see the windows iced over. They can see well enough that they can't see any movement in the controls. Uh, anybody in the, in the up front. How helpless and eerie they must have felt knowing that when that plane ran out of fuel, those people on board were going to die. And there was nothing they could do about it. When you consider how helpless they must have felt, F-16 pilots, despite the vast training, despite the vast resources, despite the colossal firepower of those F-16s, and what the fighter pilots had at their disposal, you know what? Their hands were tied to helping those people flying to their death because that plane was on autopilot and the people on it were either already asleep to their condition or dead and didn't know it. The reason I bring that whole story up and paint that picture for you is this. Sometimes elders, preachers in particular, 
don't feel too awful different from those pilots. They can often see people that have become Christians but refuse to study, refuse to grow, refuse to be involved. These people have been baptized into Christ and they've just set it on cruise control. They've set it on autopilot. They're not growing. They're just kind of they're just kind of asleep to where they are and they're just trying to have their whole life and their whole Christianity on cruise control. And preachers cry out and despite all their training and elders and all their pleading and everything they've got at their disposal to try to wake these people up so they'll change direction. Their hands are tied because those people choose. Maybe, maybe because they're asleep to their own condition. For whatever reason, they just can't help those people. Their hands are tied, and what's even worse yet, Jesus' hands are tied to those people. He can't help them. Not tied to them, but tied insofar as helping them. And those people are the ones who've tied Jesus' hands. If we bind the hands of Jesus by either refusing to be baptized or then getting baptized and just sticking it on cruise control or autopilot, refusing to continually grow in the word of God, refusing to continually learn and live and love the word of God in our daily lives, therefore preventing Jesus from really changing us and transforming us the way he wants to, then we've tied his hands. And we're going to have to face God and his judgment on that day for hardening our hearts and closing our eyes, ears, and minds to the message and binding the hands of Jesus so that his power, his passion, his sacrifice, and his suffering is of absolutely no value to us whatsoever. Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. A third way this morning, this morning's first way actually, but third way that we bind the hands of Jesus. Might as well tied the ropes. Is by refusing to do our part in the church. Third way we bind the hands of Jesus is by refusing to do our part in the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we know that Christ is the head of his body, the church. He is the head. We are members of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, As the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Turn to me in your Bibles this morning to Romans 12, would you please? <clears throat> Romans 12. We're all part, the, the picture is drawn in a couple of different places in the New Testament, we're all body parts, body members of the spiritual body or church of Christ. He is the head. We are members of the body, just like my finger is a member of my body, and my other finger is a member of my body, and my eye is a member of my body, and so on and so forth, okay? And Romans 12 draws this picture for us, beginning in verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I realize 
that this COVID thing has got us stretched out. I get it. I understand that there's members of this body who haven't seen each other for months. I get it. Believe me, I get that. I'm a people person. I understand that, okay? But we are no less members of one another than we have ever been. In Christ, we are still members of and dependent on one another. Just like the muscles in my hand are dependent upon my mouth to bring food in to power them, we are still interconnected and dependent upon one another. We need each other. It goes on to say, verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy. We know the gift of prophecy is now gone, 1 Corinthians 13. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, that simply means serving. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Still talking about the different body parts and members and how we're all linked together and we all need to work together for the good of the body. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Sounds like Philippians 2 where the love and the mindset of Jesus was to take care of others first. Verse 11, not lagging in diligence. Is this written to each one of us? Uh-huh, it's individuals, yeah. It was written to the members of the Church of Christ in Rome. Okay, let's not picture the whole body here. This was written to individual members. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. If you're fervent about something, it matters to you. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. In the bad times too? Absolutely in the bad times. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, as members of one another, it is our God-given and designed purpose and responsibility to edify, to encourage, to care for, and to stir up one another unto love and good works, serving one another in love and bearing one another's burdens always. See. It's through our mutual edification of one another is every part and member of the body of Christ works effectively and, and, and ministers to fulfill the needs of the rest of the body that Christ provides much of the physical help he does to his members. Did, did you follow that? It is through our taking care of one another that Christ takes care of the church. Who's Christ going to use to take care of the church if the other members don't do it. 
He's not just going to go, boom. It's not the way this thing works. God uses his body members to take care of the body. Now, do you remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, how the early church was always together and had all things in common? Remember that? How was God, how was Christ taking care of his church? He was taking care of his church because his church members were taking care of the other members. That's the tool he uses to take care of his body, his or her individual members, just like I use my hands to feed my mouth, which powers the rest of my body, including my feet, to keep going. But here's the thing, and we don't probably often think of it like this, but we need to. What happens when just one body part, one body part, fails fails to do its share or all that it can or what it was designed to do to the rest of the body? Can one body part cripple the rest of the body? Sure can. Y'all probably know of people that have had kidney problems, had to go on dialysis. If my hand does not take food to my mouth, or my mouth does not open to receive it, then the whole body is going to suffer as a result. Muscles and tendons that need nourishment in order to continue to carry the load they do are eventually going to get weak. Eventually they're going to die if, if this hand doesn't do what it should. What about two very tiny body parts stop working? Consider this. What if you're doing 80 miles an hour up the highway where it's legal to do 80 miles an hour in some parts of Oklahoma now on a toll road? You're doing 80 miles an hour and all of a sudden, your two eyes stop working. Can that have an effect on the rest of your body parts? They can wind up being all over the geography. Don't mean to be gross, but something as small as your eyes. What happens if you have a major heart attack and you're doing 75, 80 miles an hour up the highway and, and just, just your heart stops working? Can that affect the rest of your body? See, just one part. Have you ever considered that if just one member of the body of Christ fails to do their part, it can be a serious handicap upon, or it can seriously handicap, or weaken, or even injure, or worse, the local body of Christ? Think about that. When you say, oh, well, it's okay, you know, everybody else doing a thing, and, and it's okay if I don't, really? think you need to rethink where you're at biblically. How would you like to be the one? How would you like to be the one, just like if those two eyes stop working at 75 or 80, or the heart stops working at 75 or 80, how would you like to be the one responsible for putting the bride of Christ in a wheelchair? Imagine the beautiful and blood-bought body or bride of Christ, confined to a spiritual wheelchair, as it were, because the legs refused to carry the load they were created and designed in Christ to carry. Consider that. If the eyes refuse to see 
or the voice refused to say or do what they were designed to see and say and do by the Creator. Brother Mark Copeland shared this. He said, when we fail to do our share, again, Jesus is bound. Jesus is bound. Just as our physical head can do little if our bodily members fail to follow its leading, so it is with Jesus and his church. Jesus could do so much more for his members if only more of his members did their part for him. What happens when a head or a brain sends orders to a body that is paralyzed and won't carry them out? When that happens, because of our neglect or apathy or lukewarmness, Brother Copeland says, either the whole body of Christ suffers or others are forced to do double duty in order to make up the difference. What happens if you have one leg, one knee that doesn't work well? You, kinda, you, you start using the other one more, don't you? Well, guess what that's going to do to the other one? You're putting extra stress and strain on that one. That one's going to wear out twice as fast. Then you're going to be down two legs. Sometimes those in the Lord's church, if we would all do our part and do everything we can to make sure the body keeps going forward and, and doing all that it can, when we don't do our part, and this is the thing that always reminds me here, and I don't know, I wasn't here long enough to, to know if this is an issue or not, but there have been other congregations that I've been in where one of the big problems was when it came to Sunday school teachers. You know, there were people that could have volunteered to teach Bible class, teach the kids back there, but they didn't. They were perfectly capable. And so the same teachers get stuck in the same classes quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter after you get the idea. And so because this part or this knee refused to do its part, this knee over here was forced to do double duty. Guess what that did to the other knee? How, I don't want to see a show of hands, but some of you probably know that teachers can suffer burnout because other people won't sign up to teach. Now, like I said, I wasn't here pre-COVID long enough to know if that's a problem here or not. I just no reflection on this congregation, but I've been places where it is. That's what we're talking about, those sorts of things. While not everyone was given the gift of doing everything, and we weren't, the question is, are we truly doing everything we can with what we've been given because every one of us can do something? Or are we binding the hands of Jesus by handicapping his bride through our unwillingness to work and serve the other members of the body in every way we possibly can? That is the question. Fourth, and final way I want to discuss in which we risk the wrath of God by binding the hands of Jesus, rendering his entire mission, everything, all the suffering and sacrifice and everything he went through in order to save lost souls, we render that futile and pointless and null and void. The fourth way is by refusing to take and share that same gospel to the lost. That's number three on this slide, not number four, but my sermon wasn't based on this slide. 
Question. What possible good or value does all the suffering that Jesus went through do for the person who never hears the full biblical truth about how to accept it so they can respond to it appropriately and be saved by it. What good does it do the person who never hears the truth about that? Absolutely none. We tie the hands of Jesus. We render him ineffective to help people when we fail to tell others how to biblically respond to what he did for them. If they don't know and they can't do it, then his sacrifice to them is useless and we're the ones who tied his hands to helping them. Because we've refused to share the truth of the gospel. I am so grateful. I, I am so grateful for the people who shared the gospel with me because I was lost. You know, we often talk about how baptism is essential and included in all the conversions in the book of Acts. And it is. It is. Yeah. But there is something else except for one special situation where Jesus intervened that is also included in all the cases of conversion to Christ in the book of Acts. You know what that other thing is that's in every conversion except one? I'll tell you what it is. God used the disciple to tell a lost soul about him. In every case, think about it. God used the disciple to tell the great news of the gospel to the lost. That's an essential part. That is as essential a part of salvation or a part of the gospel plan in the book of Acts as baptism is. Angels were not given this job. Remember how Peter wrote about salvation and, and how the prophets of old talked about it, things into which angels longed to look? Remember when Peter said that? God doesn't use angels to tell people about Jesus. God uses his disciples. It is we, we are the ones, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, who have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. If the Lord's church doesn't tell people how to be saved, who's going to do it? There's no plan B. There's no, if this doesn't work, I'll do it this way. It's not there. It's not there. Which, which brings us to another rather unique point. You may have never considered before, and I really want you to think about this. As guilty as those men were of binding the hands of Jesus in the garden and the next morning, I'm not sure how bright they were. I don't think they were too awfully smart. And I say that, well, obviously they weren't. <coughs> But I say that because of the way they did what they did. For instance, have you ever stopped to think about this? Why did they bind his hands? Think about it. 
Why did they bind his hands? His hands were not his greatest weapon. You know, <clears throat> sure, he'd gotten physical at the temple. Yeah, he had. But he was not, Jesus was not the Hollywood portrayal of, of, of Chuck Norris or, or Steven Seagal or Sylvester Stallone or Jean-Claude Van Damme. He wasn't what Hollywood in all of their fictional stuff makes those men out to be. So why'd they bind his hands? He wasn't that dangerous. Despite everything they did to him, both when they arrested him and bound his hands in the garden, and then into and throughout the hours that followed, they never once sought to bind or neutralize his greatest, most powerful, and most effective weapon. They didn't. That's why I say they weren't real bright. The one weapon they simply could not withstand or overcome, the one thing, the one thing that Jesus had beaten them with continually since day one. And that was his words. Matthew 22, 15 and following. You see, it amazes me that they never once put a gag in his mouth. They bound his hands, but they never stuffed a gag in his mouth. That was his most powerful weapon. They never put a gag in his mouth to silence him and render his message ineffective, not once. And I find that fascinating. And I also find it terrifying. And the reason I find it terrifying is this. We too are told to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. We are told that the word of God is our greatest weapon as well when it comes to saving the lost. 2 Corinthians 10, three through six. And so, when we refuse, for whatever reason, to share the gospel that Jesus died to provide at every possible opportunity with those lost folks who desperately need to hear it, not only are we tying his hands to helping them, neutralizing his sacrifice for that sinner, but we are also sticking a gag in his mouth by silencing his message and his words for that sinner. We're doing something even they didn't do. Not only do we figuratively do what they did 
physically in binding his hands, but we dare go even further than they did and do what they did not by putting a gag in his mouth, neutralizing his power. Because the power of God, uh, the power of God under that person's salvation is the gospel. We neutralize the power of God to save that lost person's soul when we don't tell them about Jesus Christ. After all that Jesus endured to secure the salvation of that lost soul we know, how do we think we can live without spreading it and hope to stand before God without answering for it? How is it we think we can stick a gag in the mouth of Jesus and get away with it? Our slogan for the new year 2021 is one more than 2020. <coughs> I hope that you this morning right now are more resolved than ever. As you truly consider the words of this sermon to no longer linger to do everything in your power as an individual, and I don't care if you're 15 or 115, to unbind and set free the heavenly hands and the much needed message of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that in us, and through us, his body on earth, he can accomplish everything he died to provide that day on the cross of Calvary. You know, what he, you know what he died to accomplish that day, I'm going to tell you. That is to save us, yes, to save us to transform us, to save us to transform us so that we would then be used to go save others, so that he could transform them, so that he could use them to go save others, so he could transform them, so he could use them, so they could go and save others, so he could transform them, so he could use them until he comes again to get his church. Dare we instead bind the hands and gag the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ by not obeying the gospel and being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins? Dare we bind his hands and gag his mouth by not continuing to study and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, instead cruising to our death spiritually on autopilot? Dare we bind his hands and gag the mouth of Jesus by crippling the church, the body, the bride of Christ, by not doing all we can as an individual member to fulfill that role he gave us as we interact with and are part of his body? Dare we bind his hands and gag his mouth by not making sure that everyone we know 
knows about what he did for them and what they need to do biblically in order to take advantage of his sacrifice. Either one of these belong to you? Think about that. Think long and hard. Either one of these belong to you? Because if they do, then brethren, it is time to unbind and set free. Today is the day. It is time to unbind and to set free. Coming forward to either be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins or asking for the prayers of your brethren that you will be more committed than ever to studying, living, and sharing the word of God in your life as we stand right now to sing this song.